Good now. All right, now we're good. All right. Um, I thought I'd start by giving you a little bit of, give you a little historical background for this whole debate. Here it is. Um, there were there were other reformers before Martin Luther, but they were focused. Uh, they're focused on different issues. They're focused on uh, abuses within the church, different clerical abuses, stuff like that. They were focused on uh, translation, you know, like Tyndale. Um, they wanted the word in the language of the people so the people could read it, and the church resisted that. So they were focused on different issues of Reformation. Luther was the first one really focused on this issue of justification. So, you know, he was, uh, he was a monk, he was a scholar, uh, he was a priest, and um, as he was reading and studying Romans and Galatians, he just, he felt very burdened with the guilt of sin. And he's doing all kinds of penance and all the works that the church had lined up for him to relieve himself from this burden of guilt, but he still felt burdened and it it just didn't make sense to him. So he's reading through Romans. That's what he said. Uh, Night and day I pondered. He'd, He'd been reading Romans 1, 16 through 17, the righteousness of God through faith. So he says, night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God or the righteousness of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. What he meant by justification was that God declares us righteous rather than makes us righteous. Because the Roman Catholic understanding was that God makes us righteous or virtuous. Okay, changes our character and our behavior. And he says, no, God declares us righteous through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and great love. This passage became to me the gate of heaven. And so he began to preach, uh, even still within the Catholic church, he's preaching sola fide. That was one of the Watchwords, faith alone, faith alone. Well, uh, Roman Catholic theologians pushed back and they said, if you say salvation or justification by faith alone, you're giving people a license to sin. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? (laughs) That's exactly what people said to Paul, Romans chapter 6. But unfortunately, Luther didn't answer like Paul answered. Luther and other reformers, basically what they did is they pulled works back in the back door. So what they said is, no, Salvation is by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Okay? Salvation is by faith alone, but the salvation that actually saves is never alone. There's, so works become embedded into faith itself. Okay? Uh, interesting, one of our members sent me some current writings of uh, the current Pope, and um, he is using very similar terminology. He's embedding love back into faith. He's saying it's faith alone, but faith will exercise itself in love. And if it doesn't, that just demonstrates that a person is not saved. Well, Arminian theologians reacted to the Reformed brothers and said, no, uh, it's by faith alone, but if you don't do good works, you lose the free gift. So you have basically three positions on it. The Roman Catholic position is this. Works help a person become justified. And in Roman Catholic theology, salvation is all a process. So you are uh, regenerated 
at baptism, which happens as an infant. So you are now within the church or within the covenant community. And then justification is not seen as a point-in-time event that guarantees you eternal life. It's just part of this process. So when they use the term justification, they're usually thinking more, as we would say, sanctification. It's all a process. So it's faith and then it's and works. So it's faith and works. Always faith and works. And they can't be separated. And justification or salvation is all process. So if you're a, a... a Roman Catholic, and you have done, you believed in Jesus, and you've done lots of good works, you get to the end of your life, and what you have to look forward to is purgatory. Okay, this is for a, a good Roman Catholic. Not bad Roman Catholics, but even good Roman Catholics, because, you know, Christ paid for your sins, but then you still have to pay for or burn off the consequences of your own sins here on earth, so you're going to spend time in purgatory. So, they have masses, living Roman Catholics have masses said for the dead because that reduces your time in purgatory. They say prayers for the dead to reduce their time in purgatory. They light candles to reduce the time in purgatory. So salvation for them is all process. They don't see a distinction between justification, sanctification, glorification. Okay? And it's all faith and works for them. That's why I use the word become. You're always becoming justified. Reformed theologians would say, Works prove a person is justified. Uh, Their presence is not just natural and normal, but it is absolutely necessary. If you don't have good works, and and they'll push back if you say, well, what kind of good works and how much good works, and they're not going to, they say, well, you can't answer that, you're you're not going to know. I mean, they're going to push back from that obvious question um, that really comes to my mind. (laughs) How much? Have I done enough? Uh, interesting, if you read a lot of Reformed writers, you will see that they did not have assurance of salvation. It's in- interesting. You, a modern illustration of this is MacArthur. MacArthur tells people that it is good for you to doubt your salvation. That is a healthy process. It's presumptuous to assume that you are saved. You should doubt your salvation. Okay? Go back previous generations, and you read John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he lived in fear of hell his entire life. A very very godly man. We would say, on the outside, very strong believer, but he always wondered, will I fall away at the end so that I don't die in holiness? Well, you can't really know, can you? I mean, we're not there yet, so you don't know. So the assurance that you have is tentative. Arminians would say, works keep a person justified. So you're saved by faith alone. Okay, these would both say saved by faith alone, but works prove you're justified. These would say works keep you justified. This would be uh, your, your Presbyterians, um, Methodists, some Charismatics, uh, Pentecostals would fall into this camp. The, the tragic irony in my mind is that uh, all three groups come at this issue from a different angle, but they all land in exactly the same spot, which is there is no assurance of salvation. You cannot have assurance of salvation if you're looking at yourself. The only way you can have real confidence that you possess eternal life is if you look at the cross as the ground of assurance. Okay? So that's kind of some of just the historical background as to how we got where we are and why the, d- the debate has swirled around. Okay? Now I'll uh, open it up for uh, any questions you have. About this, or James 2, or related subjects. You're a reformer, right? Am I a reformer? (laughs) 
generally speaking, we are a part of the Reformed tradition because we are Protestant. So I believe in the um, authority of the Word of God over tradition or institution, which was foundational for the Reformation. So in that sense, we are part of Reformation. I believe that uh, Christ's death was a substitute payment for my sins. I believe in the priesthood of believers rather than clergy and laity. That's all a result of, of Reformation theology. So in that sense, all Protestants, evangelical Protestants, are in that broad Reformed tradition. Calvinistic too. Uh, I wouldn't say that I'm Calvinistic. Maybe 2.5? Maybe. Maybe 2.5. You know, it's, the problem is all, it's all terminology. How do you define these terms? That, and a, a, I say that because a Calvinist would say, I'm not a Calvinist. Because if you don't believe all five points, a Calvinist says, you're not a Calvinist. Because they all, in their system, all hold together. And if you reject one, you're not a Calvinist. So, you know, I clearly do not believe in limited atonement. I think the atonement is unlimited. That is, Christ paid the debt for all sins, for all people, for all time. Okay? Go ahead, Kev. This is soft pitch, so I'm going to Are you warming me up? What prompted the juxtaposition of some of the statements you had with John Piper? I know it just didn't fold down the blue. Somebody brought it up to you. I mean, most did you exegete Galatians and something pop in your mind about John Piper that you wanted to talk about? So you, we get a little bit more background? Uh, well, I mean, I've, I've read Piper. The question was, why did I use John Piper as an illustration? And you did it multiple times over a couple of weeks. So I just yeah. wondered, there's got to be something prompting that. Well, a combination of things prompted it. I've read Calvinistic writers and Reformed writers for 20-something years. I've been into, uh, I want to read the original sources of their stuff, not people from my camp commenting on them. So I've read that stuff for a long time, and uh, I could have used quotes from J.I. Packer or others, but I'm guessing anybody under 25 know Packer? Okay, you got a couple. What have you read from Pack? What have you read from J.I. Packer? Okay, Knowing God. It's probably the only book that most of them have read. Um, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Okay, you've read that. I, I just say that because you guys have read Piper. Anybody here not, under 25, not read anything of Piper? Oh, okay, well, I'm surprised. Uh, we, I get a lot of blowback from Piper because they say, I don't think Piper would say that. I don't think Piper's in agreement. I don't, so I'm using him because he's a contemporary and very popular illustration of this long line of people who teach this way. The other thing about Piper is it's, I feel like I can quote Piper and not take him out of context because he's, read, he's written so much. And he's not bashful about his opinions on these things. You know, he, at the back of a book, what does he think on Lordship Salvation? Well, he includes an appendix because somebody asked him about Lordship Salvation. You want to know? He, he'll set, tell you, this is what I think about Lordship Salvation. He's not bashful. Calls himself a seven-point Calvinist. He was, uh, you know, the, the plenary speaker for several years at Passion Conferences. The last one they had was 40,000 students, I think. And Piper stood at the pulpit and he said while pounding, and I listened to the whole talk, God ordains evil. God ordains evil. 
God ordains evil. God ordains evil. I think it was seven times in his talk. So this is not out of context. It's not what, he's, what he's saying is his view of, of sovereignty, basically, in my, in my understanding, of, of, he's the most honest and transparent about the fact that his view of sovereignty colors all of his theology. And if you look at the Reformed tradition, um, let me put, put a variety of subjects in this context. You, uh, you all have kind of a central attribute of God around which you arrange the other attributes. may not be really consciously aware of that, but we do. Kind of we, you know, God is love. When he's also holy, and you know, we, we put them all together, but around a, kind of a central understanding of the character of God, or God is holy. In Reformed theology, it's sovereignty. God is sovereign, and their understanding of sovereignty is very deterministic. Okay? God ordains evil. Okay. If you believe um, that God is sovereign in the sense of no one can resist his will, thwart his will, alter his will, it's going to determine how you view a lot of different theological subjects. So, for example, if it was God's will that Christ die for all men and God is sovereign, then all will be saved. Right? That's logical. Are all saved? No. Therefore, Christ did not die for all. There's limited atonement. Okay? If God's will for your life as a Christian is that you live a life of holiness all the way to the end, and why would he want anything less for you, right? Then because God is sovereign and his will is a life of holiness until the end, you will live a life of holiness till the end. And if you don't, it just proves that you weren't a believer because God is sovereign. Okay? So they come to a verse like First um, John 2, he himself is the propitiation, that is the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin for not just our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. What do they do with a verse like that? Well, they say the world of the elect. Okay? <laughs> so he's the satisfaction of sins for all of us and the rest of the elect. Well, you know, you're, you're reading your theology into the passage because in John's theology, cosmos is actually everything that's, in the world order that's set against God. So Christ is the satisfaction of God's wrath for all that is set against God. Okay, Everybody, all things. Um, and there are a few other verses that I think really kind of dismantle that argument. But the point is, if you start from a position of God's sovereignty being deterministic, then you have to say, in all honesty, God ordains evil. Because evil happens, and nothing can happen outside of the will of God. So, you know, you had... One student in the midst of that talk, you can hear it in the background, yell out, go, that's heresy. <laughs> but just one. Okay? Just one. Um, but uh, the reason I use Piper is he's so popular, he's so well-known, so influential, I think, right now. Um, and he writes, he writes some really, really great stuff, but I think he's off base because of this issue of sovereignty. I think that, that throws him, up. you know, as I see it. Well, never mind. Well, I don't want to go down too far down that Sovereignty, human responsibility path, since we're talking about James. Okay, yes. Well, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I should let you know that I am reformed. <laughs> well, so am I, obviously. Mostly. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love Piper. Uh, so I will, you know, tell you, ask you the question from a reform perspective and see kind of how you take that uh, 
not a hypothetical situation. Some of my best friends are reformed. Okay. <laughs> so. Maybe we can hang out later or something. <laughs> but uh, not from a hypothetical situation, but from a, uh, a very real situation. Uh, I have uh, an older brother uh, who, at a young age, professed Christ and said that uh, he repented and believed. And the, uh, the charlatan who got him to pray a prayer of repentance for him, uh, never let anyone tell you that your salvation is in doubt. Have full assurance of your salvation. And uh, never let anyone tell you different. My older brother has gone on to live a terrible life. One where he's been, I'm not going to go out and throw all of his sins out, but let's say he's not a person that you would ever see darken the door of the church ever again. And he never did darken the door of the church ever again. Uh, but when I preach to him Christ, when I tell to him, brother, you know, look at the life that you lived. How can you have any assurance of your salvation? He says, you know, look, at a time, a long time ago, I did this thing, and I'm done with it. I'm good. So what do you say to that person? How is that different from Roman Catholicism? What you're preaching there, you know, justification. It sounds like you're preaching justification without regeneration. Uh, so how do you say that? What do you say to a person like that? Well, you're okay, even though you're, you know, living, living out in the world, living just like them, friendship with the world. But you have no fruit. You bear no fruit whatsoever of Christ. What do you say to that person? Okay, I'll give you a, my response. Like, Matt, would you prop open that door? Because we're going to get warm in here. Um, not just because of your question. But. <laughs> Um, what I would say, first of all, okay, the question was, um, he's got a brother who professed faith in Christ and now is living a life completely inconsistent with that. Uh, can we give him assurance of his eternal life? Should we give him assurance of his eternal life? The first thing that I would say is, uh, my point from this morning is, is very simply that James just isn't talking about that kind of person. That's my point from this morning. That it's, that's just not what James addresses. And so we have issues in our lives personally that we see or around us, and so we try to apply James to that, but James isn't talking about that. James just happens to be talking about genuine believers who are not living as they should, and they're undergoing discipline and corrective measures, and he's trying to draw them back into a path of wisdom and faithfulness. That's what James is talking about. Now, are there people who uh, say, I'm a Christian, and they're not? Sure. Sure, there are. Um, how do we know? We don't. Okay, we don't. Um, if somebody comes into my office and they say to me, I'm a Christian. Now, again, let me be clear. We just set James aside. Because James is not what's applicable in this situation. Okay, protect with me on that. Okay, he comes to my office. He says, I'm a Christian. So why are you here? Well, you know, I'm living like hell, but I want you to guarantee to me that I'm going to heaven. I go, well, okay. Um, Do you understand the gospel? He says, sure, I understand the gospel. So I'll say, all right, well, tell me. How does a person know they're saved? Um, I'm putting it as if it's a hypothetical, but I've actually had many conversations like this. Sometimes the person, thanks, Matt. Um, sometimes the person can clearly articulate the gospel to me. And, and they say, I have believed that. And then we probe a little bit, well, why are you living like this? 
Um, and that what I normally see is conviction of sin. And there's part of them that really feels enslaved to this sin. But they also wanna, don't want to leave it. They're very conflicted. And so we begin to move forward. And I assume if they can articulate the gospel, they say they believe in the gospel, I think we're on to issues of discipleship. And that's where I go with them. Uh, a lot of times I'll, I'll ask them, explain the gospel to me, and they say, I'm a Christian, but they cannot articulate the gospel. And so what do I do? I present the gospel, okay? And I try to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. And if at the end of that, they just don't get it, they don't understand it, whatever, say, I don't think you understand the gospel yet. So there's really not a lot more help I can give you with these issues of sin in your life, so to speak, because it doesn't seem that you've ever said, I believe in Jesus Christ, I trust him. So in a sense, I'm looking at that person from both a theological and a ministry perspective. Can I give that person uh, assurance of salvation? Well, honestly, that's not my job to give a person assurance. But I do know that the ground of assurance is, are you trusting in the death of Jesus Christ on your behalf? And normally what's going on, in my experience, has been they don't understand what an incredibly great gift that was. They are completely removed from fellowship. They have walked with the Lord for a while, and then they felt convicted about a moral decision, and they didn't respond to that conviction. They stayed on that path. And usually they're not continuing even to claim necessarily that they're a Christian. They're just marching down that path away from the Lord. They're not going to have assurance because... They're not actually looking at the cross right now. They're looking at uh, totally absorbed with the lusts of their flesh. So, could I give your brother assurance? No, I wouldn't try to, and it wouldn't be my job. Uh, I'd probably walk back through the gospel and see if he can articulate it. And then we talk about, well, you know, why do you think this is wise? Do you understand the judgment seat of Christ? Are you in fellowship? Are you in the word? Are you um, uh, obeying what you know is already true? Well, if you're not, then there's nothing that I can do to help you get back on that path, okay? So that's how I'd respond to him. Theologically, could he be a Christian? Yeah, he could. Do I know? No, I don't know. And there's nothing in his life that would convince me that he were. Yep. Then, what, then I want to move on because I want to get yeah, into James' I questions. I don't, uh, and what would you say to a verse like this? I mean, you will know them by their fruits. Do men get the grapes from thorn bushes or figs or something? Were you Matthew 12 or Matthew... Seven. Okay. Okay. Can you define fruit? Can you define fruit for me? Can I define fruit for you? Yeah. Is that a rhetorical question? No. <laughs> living a good life is okay. Living a good life is is he talking about living a good life as fruit? Chapter seven, verse fifteen. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. What's their fruits? What's the problem with the false prophets? The problem with the false prophets is that actually outwardly, they have all kinds of good works. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not perform miracles in your name? So in other words, as an outsider, I look at this false prophet's life and I say, he's casting out demons, he's prophesying in the name of Jesus Christ, everything looks good, inwardly he's a ravenous wolf, and, and Christ is saying in, in Matthew 7, 
that the, in Matthew 7 and then Matthew 12 is the issue is that they don't accept Jesus as God's Messiah. So the fruit is actually the fruit of their lips that froze, flows from their heart. They don't believe in Jesus. So in the context, this is why I'm pushing you, define fruit. Every word takes on its meaning based upon the context. He's not talking about good works in Matthew 7. But I have heard that verse preached a hundred times. But it's actually not preached. It's just the phrase is thrown out. You'll know them by their fruits. And the assumption is you're going to know if a person's saved or not saved based upon their lifestyle. That's not at all what Jesus is talking about. Okay? He's saying actually their lifestyle looks great, but inside they're dead. They will even say to me on the day of judgment, look at our fruit, our lifestyle. And you say, depart from me. I never knew you. I didn't have a relationship with you. Okay? So, Jesus was very concerned about um, hypocrisy, false profession, but that verse doesn't apply to your brother in particular. Okay? And we can chew on that more. I'm, I'm happy I'll stay long. We can talk more about that later, Matthew 7 or Matthew 12 in the context too. But let's, let's go on to James. Yes? Uh, I just wanted to understand the objector. <laughs> Me too. All right. And how it's in contrast to James, uh, it sounds like in your explanation that he's telling James, you just have faith. But isn't James saying, no, we have faith and work? Okay, I'll do my best. Like I said, I, I get, you know, maybe 60 to 70% confident. And the reason I put it, uh, I, I didn't spend a ton of time on it, is I think that you can understand James' argument without understanding exactly what's going on with the objector. So again, okay, you start the quote there, everybody agrees. NIV ends the quote there, New American Standard ends it there. There's mine right there, okay? Um, someone may well say, if James' thesis is faith and works cannot be separated, I think that the objector is saying, well, in fact, faith and works can be separated. So, someone may well say, you, James, have faith. That is faith only, and I, the objector, have faith and works. Now, the reason I don't put the quote in quote here is because then James would be speaking, show me your faith without the works. Well, no, the objector has just said, I have faith and works. So he wouldn't say, show me your faith without the works. So, the objector is saying, let's say for the sake of argument, James, that you have faith alone and I'm the one with faith and works. James, go ahead and show me your faith without the works, then I'll show you my faith by my works. You can show faith with works, you can show faith without works. That's his proposition. Then verse 19 is his proof, and he flips it. Okay? And he says, James, really, in reality, you believe that God is one. That is, you have faith, orthodox faith. You also do well, or in other words, you do good works. James, really, you have faith in works. But here, this is the, this is the final blow to your, your argument, James. The demons believe that God is one, and they don't do good works. So there it is, James. You got faith in works. Demons have faith. No works. So I've just proven that faith and works can be separated. And this is also, in a sense, a really uh, common form of Greek argumentation you have logically argued to the wrong conclusion. There's a, a Greek, specific Greek verb for that. <laughs> Reasoning to the wrong It's a very tight argument. It's true. 
Demons believe, they have faith, we don't doubt their faith, but they don't have good works. So I think that concludes his argument. See, I made my point. And James says, oh, you're, you're a fool. You've missed my point. My point is, faith and works are inseparable for a useful life. You cannot be saved from a useful, useless life by faith alone. You have to have faith and works. They are inseparable. Help at all? No, probably not. It's, it's, uh, it <laughs> I tell you, I've, I've read every possible reconciliation of this, and when I finish, my head's usually spinning, you know, so I try to write it out in my own paraphrase, and I, it's, this is as least convoluted as I can make it. That's why I like it. I, I, and I do think, I do think it just, rhetorically, it makes so much more sense to put it here. Look at this, uh, look at the illustration here, 1 Corinthians 15. I don't know if you had a chance to look this up during the service or right after. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. But someone will say, okay, that's how you introduce the objector. A very rhetor- common rhetorical device. So, someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? You fool. Okay, now you know that Paul is speaking again. Because of the quotation mark? No, there were no quotation marks. But they got this one right because it's very clear Paul's speaking again because he says, you fool. Okay, I think it's the same here with James. But are you willing to recognize you fool? You foolish fellow. So what, you know, what the author does is he raises the rhetorical objection and sometimes he'll, he'll put, you know, in a sense, a, a, an absurd argument, so to speak, in the objector's mouth so he can just go, creates a straw man something that's easily taken out. And he comes back and says, are you willing to recognize your foolish fellow? So I think that that really clearly marks the end of the quote from the objector and the beginning of James' statement. And one of the reasons this is significant is that if you, um, for the Reformed argument or even for the Arminian argument, the foundation of their argument is that James is saying, verse 19, okay, that's the foundation of the argument. James must be saying, verse 19, that the demons also believe and shudder. That is, demons have faith, but they don't have eternal life, right? But if the objector is saying that, then we don't want to base our theology of this passage on what the objector is saying, do we? No, no, because whatever the objector is saying, it's wrong, <laughs> okay? James thinks it's wrong. So that's really, I mean, that's why just the quotation mark really influences how you understand this whole passage. Yeah, Carl. I guess I'm not understanding. Why would you think that the demons had faith? I would say they had knowledge, just like someone that came and could articulate the gospel, and yet... I don't think the demons have faith. The objectors arguing the demons have faith in the sense of, uh, do they believe that God is one? Absolutely. They know in a sense, the very nature and essence of the Trinity much better than we as humans do. They've had much better access to that. So, they, so that's why he doesn't say, he doesn't say, notice, you believe that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose from, your, rose from the dead for your sins. He just says, the great Shema, or Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. It's just Jewish orthodoxy. That's all that he puts in the mouth of the demons. They believe that God is one. You cannot deny the demons know and acknowledge and accept the fact that Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There's one Yahweh, there's one God, just one. He, there's a unity in the Godhead. Demons believe that. So I don't think that James is affirming that demons have faith. 
the objector is using an absurd argument to try to make the point that faith and works can be separated. So you say, you're saying that demons believe in God, but why do you say he does not face? Why do I say what? You say, you just said, uh, demon doesn't have faith, right? Well, they don't have faith in the sense of, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and was risen from the dead. They don't have, yeah, justifying faith. Yeah, it's, it, is, it is faith in the sense of they know it, they acknowledge it, they believe it's true that God is one. Okay? But that's why it is a totally ridiculous argument. And it, in my mind, it doesn't make sense to put it in James' mouth because there's no sense that James w- would be thinking of demons having a possibility of getting rescued from the penalty of sins and have eternal life because Christ didn't die for demons and die for fallen angels. So it doesn't make sense to put that in James' mouth. It makes a lot of sense to put it in a foolish objector's mouth because it's such a ridiculous argument. Okay? So I think, I think context of the flow of the argument, as well as this rhetorical device, argues pretty strongly that that's where you, sh- you should put the quotation mark, the ending of the quotation mark. I actually have one thought. If yeah. there is from the object the, about uh, uh, demons, would have used something else because that's not very helpful because <laughs> everyone knows demon is not going to be saved. Right? Mm-hmm. So why he would use that as you know statement to support? Pre- precisely, I don't think James would use this. I don't think he would. What I'm saying, like the object for the people. Object. Well, but see, James creates a hypothetical argument for the objector. Okay, James is creating this hypothetical argument, so. It's, it's a great form of argumentation, so to speak, to say, <laughs> create the absurd that proves the point, but obviously misses the mark. You know, because it's obvious. I won. James said, foolish fellow. Obvious. Yeah. This morning we read from 121, uh, therefore putting aside all holiness and all the remains of wickedness, really the word of thankfulness is able to save your souls. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you maybe paint a forward picture um, from here? And you used some references from Prophet this morning. Where were what souls kind of connotes here? Soul is, your, is uh, the, the, uh, a lot of the uh, anthropological terms have a pretty broad usage. So heart, for example, the heart of man can refer to your emotions, but that's the least common. It's what we think of most in our current setting, but usually it's referring to your thought processes, your intention, your will. It could be emotion. So all of these anthropological terms can have a range of meaning. Uh, soul, the most common use for the word soul is uh, just the person, the, just the whole person. Sometimes it can refer to something like the in, in, uh, immaterial part of man, the inner man, but usually it's just the person. So on the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 souls that were saved. There's 3,000 people. So a lot of times you'll see it just translated as people, okay? Or life, the life of a person. You know, not their inner life or their outer life, just their life. Okay? That's the most, in a sense, broad and inclusive term with soul. So the salvation of your soul is the salvation of your life. The rescue of your life from something and in the context from what? Well, if you're speaking foolish words, the consequences of speaking foolish words and how destructive those can be to you or to those around you. Does that make sense, Matt? Okay. Yeah, Jennifer. And this goes back to the beginning. Where, where did you 
in, in verse 14, decide that, that he's talking about saving him from a useless life. And I know you, you went over that and you talked about Old Testament, Old Testament references. Um, yeah, but I was taking it primarily from the, the immediate context in uh, James. It says that he means salvation in eternal. Mm-hmm. He's, Piper's whole uh, grid for looking at this is that James is not sure if these people are saved. So similar to you know your brother's situation, he's looking at their lives and he's saying, I'm not sure if they're saved. And the only way, not, not just that they can prove to those on earth, but also prove to God, so to speak, that they're saved is by doing good works, loving your brother and so forth. So that's his grid for it. James is uncertain about his audience. And so he's, he's wanting them to test the reality of their justifying faith by doing these good works. So it's interesting, Piper in his, his last book is, is, and I hadn't seen him, I hadn't seen him do this before, maybe he had, but I, it's the first time I'd seen him do it. He talks about uh, two justifications or two parts of justification, so to speak. That is uh, present justification and future justification. So present justification, he says, that's on faith alone. But then future justification, you'll stand before God and that has to be faith and works. If works aren't there validating that this was a true faith, then you will go to hell. Okay? So pulling justification, a present justification and a future justification. This is by faith alone. This is by faith and works. So if you asked uh, Piper, he said, how is a person uh, saved? He would say by faith alone. Okay? He's, I mean, he's right in the middle of the Reformed tradition on that, by faith alone. But then he would come back with that, uh, you know, that, that cliche, that statement, you're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. Okay? So good works in that sense are inevitable because of the sovereignty of God. My basic position on that is that good works are natural and normal, but not inevitable. Yeah, and I, and I think that, uh, sometimes it's a problem with that. If, you know, someone is saved, like myself, I spent a lot of time where I did not look, if you looked at me, I did not look like a saved person. I did not act like a saved person because I hadn't gone through that you know, uh, what is it, sanctification, yeah. or I don't know, mm-hmm. after that period. So if you looked at me, you might have thought, well, she's not saved. But if I had died at that point, yeah, you know, that's what I was. What's God's basis of evaluation? Well, if you, if you see just one judgment, as he does, and you don't pull it apart, then you'd say, well, he's judging you based on faith and works, rather than saying, no, is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? And the way that it's written in the Lamb's Book of Life is... Did you believe? Okay. And then you will go to judgment and be evaluated. But if you notice, all judgments are according to works. You notice that? Non-believers and believers, all judgments are according to works. There are consequences for the choices that we make in this world. So when the Roman Catholics said, well, you're giving people a license to sin, the right answer was no. A genuine believer who's accepted God's grace then abuses God's grace will suffer consequences in this life and at the judgment seat of Christ. And if you say that, no, all these, these epistles and these warning passages in the epistles are written to people who might not be believers, then you're missing the impact for you, Christians. Those were written to you. They are warning you. There will be consequences for your sins, genuine Christians. Okay, so you miss the point. You go, well, it's just, it's for the hypothetical Christian. Maybe is, maybe isn't, but probably isn't, and proves that he isn't by his works or lack of works. No, they're written to you. Yeah, well, let me get Susie. Yeah. Being crucified, Jesus 
Yeah, he didn't get baptized either. Right. The, yeah, the thief on the cross is a good illustration. You know, you could just argue that that um, he he did good works. Uh, you know, in his heart, his attitude would change. He didn't have opportunity for any more, and so he was accepted on that basis. I, I think you're right, but I'm just I'm just trying to think through how would I argue it from a different perspective. <laughs> I'm sure he smiled. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. I guess I, I would argue that I think I think Piper got it got it right and not just for the sake of defending him obviously one of the um, biblical but I, I would say that he didn't do anything that scripture didn't do I think everything that looks like potential contradiction is passing forth from scripture it's from scripture that already looks like contradiction I don't think it is but it looks like that um, and I have a variety of passages but um, in John 8 31 32 he talks about continuing in the word uh, I have so many passages that it, it, I don't know if you want me to just pick Well, just give me one. Give me this John 8. Uh, John, and there are basically what, what I'm saying from the passages is that I think it's clear in, in many places it talks about continuing to the end, enduring to the end, persevering to the end, and but that God causes it in the first place, which I think is what Piper is saying. Yeah, you're right. That is what he's saying. He's saying God causes it. And if it doesn't happen, obviously God wasn't causing it on that person's behalf, which demonstrates they weren't a Christian. And I would say, uh, particularly in John, that the, the verb meno, um, to abide, carries the connotation of remaining in intimate fellowship with the Lord. Piper and even some profs that I had at DTS would say, you know, meno is synonymous with belief. But I think that, I think they're, again, reading a theology in there. Meno, meno means remain in, abide in fellowship. And if you don't remain in that fellowship, you're not a disciple, Jesus is saying. You're not my follower. I, I think that there's a confusion between disciple and Christian. The word disciple is actually used in a variety of ways in the Gospels, but it's not necessarily synonymous with Christian. John is writing, and Christ is he's writing about a period of Christ's life before even his death, burial, and resurrection. So, again, I don't, I don't argue that we should endure. Uh, I think that, interestingly, the Reformers' theology on this point comes from Augustine through the Roman Catholic Church. Augustine um, made a very strong point of Christ's statement, the one who endures to the end will be saved. The problem was Augustine and later the Catholic Church took it out of context. He's, it's a prophetic passage, and I think, again, he's talking about the one who endures through this period of tribulation will be saved, that is, delivered physically into the kingdom. Okay, I don't think... I don't think Getting out of hell is even in that context, but that is where that is where the reformers got their theology. Martin Luther and even Calvin they really focused on soteriology, doctrine of salvation, and they 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 moved us in in the just the right direction, no question about it. Interestingly, though, they didn't uh, reform the doctrines of ecclesiology and eschatology. Okay, so they didn't change largely, and to, to a large degree, the the basic nature of, of Christians' understanding about the church and end times. That's why if you go to a Presbyterian church, they baptize infants, just like we baptize infants in the Catholic Church. Well, why is that? Because they they borrowed the same concept of being brought into the covenant community. But can we say that those babies were regenerated? No. Well, why do you baptize them then? 
well, it's kind of a dedication. It's what, you know, and they dance all around that. You know, and I've got a, a guy who's a relative of mine who uh, became a, an a, a Anglican uh, Episcopal priest. And, you know, we went like this. Why are you baptizing them? Why? And then I decided it wasn't worth it for family relationships to keep going down that path. Okay, we're not going to because we're not going to get there. But they, they baptize infants because they've borrowed an ecclesiology that's very similar. Their eschatology is uh, straight from, from Roman Catholic thought, too. It's amillennial. There is no millennium. Well, I think that all those theologies are tied together, and I think that they just didn't clear up some of those additional doctrines that needed to be reformed. So I'm not arguing that we should not endure to the end. I think there are consequences if you do not persevere. I think there are consequences if you don't remain in fellowship with other believers. I think there are consequences for all those things, but it's not a proof that you're not saved. So. Is that a lot to do with salvific status? This passage in John, right? That has to do with you, how your works manifest. Right? Yeah. Your works will demonstrate that you're following. This doesn't have to do if you abide in my word, then you're saved. Your soul is saved from heaven. That's not what this passage they're not, in a sense, they're, historically, they're not even to that point yet. Okay? I'm walking along. Jesus, I'm walking along, and I've got disciples. I mean disciples, meaning learners, students, followers. If you hang with me, you're really one of my disciples. And if you hang with me all the way to the point of the cross, burial, resurrection, the truth will make you free. Okay? But he's not, he's not there yet, so to speak, historically. So he is saying... You want to stay on that pathway and be my follower, you need to remain with me. Hang with me. What happened? Well, periodically, he'd make one of these hard statements uh, about, in John, about uh, the cross. Got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And what happened? They're gone. <laughs> okay? I'm out of here. That's, they didn't remain his followers. Okay? Was the issue eternal life or not? No, they just didn't remain on that path. Maybe they came back in later and believed. Maybe they didn't. But in a sense, none of them were Christians yet. There were no Christians yet. He hadn't died, been buried, risen from the dead. Yeah, you had a follow-up? Uh, I guess I would say that I understand one of the I can see where it's coming from. I feel that it's, in, in a sense, based on Piper and, and many of that, I guess, probably went through and some of that tradition would believe um, their view of sovereignty of God in a sense, I think it's unfair to characterize them as saying works-based salvation. And I know that you weren't saying that they were saying that uh, on purpose. They would obviously deny that if you ask them. But I, I believe that you said either this week or last week that he that his conclusion was logically works-based salvation. No, I didn't say that. Oh, okay. No, but I did give his quote where he says, in the middle of his chapter where he's trying to argue against N.T. Wright that justification is by faith alone. In the middle of the chapter, he makes a statement. He says, make no mistake. Let me be perfectly clear. Your works are necessary for salvation. Okay? So he, he doesn't bring works in the front door like Roman Catholics do or maybe uh, Church of Christ. But he... he is, is unashamedly brings him in the back door, okay? There, there's no question about it. He, he, he argues that, and he makes that statement very clearly. And, you know, where I'm even probably more concerned is if you asked him, is salvation by faith alone, he'd say yes. 
but his his grid of um, putting everything through this concept of the glory of God and Christian hedonism uh, forces him down a path sometimes where he says, you know, his his chapter on conversion in um, desiring God. I mean, he makes a statement that there are conditions plural for receiving the free gift of eternal life, which include, you know, obedience and humility and da 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 da. It's you know so. Either you, you're going to say those are a part of faith, which is what he'd say. That's real faith. So I, I put that, I embedded that back into faith, or it's works. Okay, and what I'm saying is that confuses and confounds the very clear message of faith alone, and I think that that's very dangerous. And the reason I brought him up again, Kevin, back to your question is because the church needs to be clear on this. And the most dangerous people to the church are the people inside the church. So Peter gets one of these in front of absolutely everybody. Why? You know, we're not talking about speaking in tongues or not speaking in tongues. Honestly, who cares? What you're talking about is the nature of the gospel. And so Paul goes after him. And I think that, um, you know, I'm not interested in, in, (laughs) I'm not interested in picking fights whatever, but I think that I, I feel like as a shepherd that I do a disservice to the flock if I don't say you need to be cautious when you read this person because that's confusing. Have you loved your brothers enough to know that you have eternal life? Um, he raises that specter that I don't know, okay? And I don't think I'm doing him a disservice because there's a consistent thread in his teaching going that direction. I, I think the based on his view of sovereignty of God and the fact that it would be God inclining to be able to do that anyway. So basically, if you're elect, you're going to do it, and if you're not, you're not, then it kind of takes care of that. It does, but I think his view of sovereignty is the biggest problem. That's the foundation of his problem. Can you resist the will of God? No. You can't. Have you ever sinned? <laughs> was that God's will for your life that you sinned? In the great will purpose, yes. In the great so it was God's will that you sinned? Well, then God ordains evil. And he's right, and I'm wrong. Okay. Is there justification without regeneration? Are you saying that God leaves, that he saves people and he just leaves them? No. And all these people No. No. That's what you're, that sounds like what you're teaching. No. Every warning passage in the scripture validates the fact that believers resist the work of God from time to time in their lives. Regeneration happens simultaneously with justification. You believe and you are declared righteous, and you are born again, and God's Spirit lives inside of you, okay? And you will never be the same person, ever, okay? You'll never be the same person. Uh, In particular, you'll never be able to sin the same way, because you will experience conviction of the Holy Spirit. You'll have consequences in your life that fall on you uh, that are are for God's family. He does not allow his family to uh, drag his name through the dirt. And so, what's that? That sounds like fruit to me. Well, I might not see any of that. Yeah. I, I think it is. I think conviction of the Holy Spirit is fruit. But I'm not necessarily going to see that. Okay? So, I can resist and resist and resist the will of God, I would argue. Because I think that, okay, we're back on to <laughs> sovereignty human responsibility way away from James, but that's okay. Uh, the, the, if God is absolutely sovereign, then God can do whatever God chooses to do. Fair enough? Okay. 
God could have created the order in the universe and you actually all are robots. You just feel like you have a choice. Okay? He has that, he has that right. So to speak. Sovereignty is, the, is the, the right and the power to do whatever he chooses to do. Okay? On the other hand, since he's sovereign, he could have set up the universe very differently. I think the only way that you know how he exercises his sovereignty is by the data of Scripture. How does it describe God actualizing his sovereignty? I think the way that it describes it as is that God elects, God chooses, and he has the right to do that, and so he does it. And he calls all people to believe, and whoever believes will be saved. And a person doesn't land in hell because they're non-elect. They land in hell, according to John 3, because they don't believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So within God's sovereign realm, he made these beautiful, glorious creatures that have a limited, delegated form of his sovereignty. Okay, that is the very uh, heart of being made in the image of God. Okay, you are people who create. You are people who choose and act with consequence within God's sovereign realm. And so it's both and. God is sovereign and you are responsible and the Bible never reconciles the two for you. Okay, never. Romans 9 through 11 is the perfect illustration. And frequently when I have somebody coming at me hard on sovereignty of God, they'll, they'll, they'll do, go Romans 9, Romans 9, Romans 9. I'll say, well, what does Romans 10 say? I don't know. <laughs> well, then you don't know all of Paul's argument. Romans 9 says God is sovereign. Okay? He chooses, he elects, and he has the right to do it. And you don't have a right to even talk back to him about it. Romans 10 says... The Jews are responsible for their rejection of Jesus Christ and choosing to try to establish their own righteousness. God is sovereign. And Jews, they're responsible. The reason they're outside of the righteousness of God right now is because of their choice, not because of uh, sovereignty of God. He says their choice. Romans 11, God in his sovereignty is going to bring them back in to the fold. Gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, so they will be grafted back in. Romans 11, rather than reconciling sovereignty and human responsibility, what does he do? He says, let's stop and have a little worship service. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unfathomable are his ways. Amen. Let's move on to the next topic. So my argument is God is absolutely sovereign and man is absolutely responsible because that's the way he exercises his sovereignty. And in my opinion, and we talked about this last night, this is just an opinion. I don't personally think that, that we will ever be able to reconcile the two. You know, we have this concept that, you know, when we're glorified and with Jesus Christ, we get all our questions answered. No way. God will still be infinite and we will still be finite. And so, to me, one of the most intriguing things about eternity in heaven is that you will always be learning and never be able to wrap your mind around God. It's going to be a very stimulating, fascinating. You're going to say, hey, let's go have another worship service with the Lord. Wow, I'd never thought of that before. That's amazing. You know, and it's, so it's going to be so enlightening and illuminating. I think particularly this concept of sovereignty and human responsibility is rooted in the eternality of God. And we will never be eternal. We'll be immortal, but we'll never be timeless. We had a beginning, but no end. And so I just, I don't think that we'll grasp that. So I think that this is, I think you're right. I mean, I think exactly where uh, this, your really strong five-point or seven-point Calvinists 
get off track is uh, precisely along the lines of their definition of sovereignty. I think that's the root of it. You know, and it took me quite a while to kind of boil it down to, yeah, that's, that's, that's where we're having a point of disagreement and why we diverge. So, yeah. Steve? It's funny, having gone 20 years here and then spent four years in a reform seminary, I can see so much of both. And one thing is I've been in reform circles where they say, you know, all the evangelicals, and they make a blanket statement. And what they mean by evangelicals is charismatics, um, Baptists, Bible churches. And they're just like, you cannot make a blanket statement like that. But then I come into evangelical circles and they say all reformed people think like that. And I know for a fact that there's a lot of reformed people who have no problem with eternal security. And they're not amillennial. So I'm not, no, no. I'm just saying that. Piper is an example. He's not all millennial. And, and I would also say all, uh, almost all Reformed theologians believe in eternal security. That's not the issue. The, the P for them, though, is not TULIP, you know, T-U-L-I-P, is not preservation of the saints, as we would argue. It's not eternal security, but it's you will live a life persevering in holiness until the end. That's perseverance. So they all agree with eternal security. If you are genuinely saved, you will be, you will have eternal life. They don't doubt that. So I agree with you. So that's just my warning shot over the bow that, um, you know, I got so tired of reformers saying, well, you know, they, they're all Arminians. I'm like, that is so, that's just poppycock. You know? But my question is, and it's not so much with James, but what is the Mosaic law? When I read Psalm 19, the law is clean, the law is pure, the law converts. So obviously I don't believe the law you know, gets me salvation. But in Deuteronomy, all the laws of the animals and the people, if your ox gore somebody, you owe them this restitution, our whole legal system is based upon that. Mm-hmm. So are we, are we saying that that is not valuable? And I, I remember even being in grace and people would, one person in particular would teach that everything on the Sermon on the Mount was kingdom living to Jews. Therefore, that really doesn't apply to us. And so I, I know you're not saying this, but I'd like a qualification. You're not saying that everything from Pentecost back is just good old stuff to kind of keep in the files, but doesn't really apply today because it was law, and now we're gospel. You're not right. saying that, correct? I better not be. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to come up. <laughs> uh, see, if you were sitting back in here, Steve's question was, um, basically, what is the value and the applicable applicability of the law today? Efficacy of the law, appropriateness for us to read, live, apply, whatever, the law. Well, uh, let me just say a couple of things. You talk about Sermon on the Mount, so I want to remind me if I forget, get lost, come back to that. Paul in Galatians, I don't think it has uh, in his mind specific laws. He's not saying these laws apply and these laws don't apply. I don't think that's in his mind. What Paul is talking about is a system of law versus a system of grace and living by one of the other systems. Because it's very clear some of the laws don't apply to us at all in terms of the sacrificial system. Well, yeah, I mean, Christ made a final sacrifice. That's over. So we don't make sacrifices. That's very clear. It doesn't apply. 
so I don't I don't think he's you know as I think a lot of evangelicals reformed in our branch every branch make this distinction well there's the ceremonial laws and the moral laws and so forth well, Paul's not talking about that Paul's saying the law as a system because the law as a system lacks power it just can tell you in a sense what's right or wrong and if you're a good interpreter you see this is what's right or wrong and how it applies in my historical context. Okay? Well, there's a valuable use to that. I mean, we quoted Proverbs today as if it applies to us because it does. Proverbs are timeless truths, right? So I think there is an applicability, but what I think both James and Paul argue is uh, the law of liberty is basically the, the essence of the law, okay, so in the Sermon on the Mount, not just uh, don't hate, I mean, not just don't murder, but don't even have hatred in your heart. Okay, the, what God was really after, what he hoped for, you know, was that we would be morally transformed, our character would be changed. That's what God was really after. The law just couldn't produce that. Okay? But now, Christ can produce that. So the righteous requirements, it says in Romans 8, the righteous requirements of the law can be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what Christ is trying to do in our lives is the, the, the law as it reflects the moral character of God, he's trying to cause that to be uh, worked out through us through the power of his Spirit. So there's great value and validity in reading the law and trying to get an understanding of what's really the, the essence, the timeless principle that God was teaching the Israelites through this process. How can I accomplish it? through my unaided efforts of my flesh? No, I can't. That's a system. Okay? And all that's going to do is produce condemnation because it's going to tell me what the standard is, show me that I can't reach the standard, and as it says in Romans 7, maybe even entice me to break the standard. But what can the Spirit do? The Spirit can show me that same standard and show me how valuable it is and beneficial and how it produces so much change and transformation in my life. And so I pursue it according to that system Walk according to the Spirit. Walk in step with the Spirit versus walking according to um, a legalistic system of the law. So I think he's talking about two systems. If I could just raise one other point that having been seen both camps in very minute detail, I have seen that personality drives a lot of this. And I don't know if you've seen that, mm-hmm. but personally, you know, that's always a good gut check for me is is my personality leaning to one or the other because I like it that way. So personality drives a lot of these arguments. Sure. You know, and honestly, I think that's why this is the best forum to work out our theology. You know, where we can discuss it, debate it, argue it. Um, We've got time to process it and hear how other people are thinking. Uh, You know, if you look at the the great uh, church councils, this is how they fought it out and arrived at Good doctrine. And I always, I mean, I always, I learn from this process. I learn from it. So, yeah. Jennifer. Will you do this again? Have you done it yeah. before? We're new, so. Yeah, but I haven't done it in a while. It's been a while. Sovereignty of God or something could be the discussion. They're good. Yes, he is. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> if he gives us another day, we'll do this or that, right? Okay. Talk a little bit, Peter, so they can hear you across the room. Sorry. Yeah, pretty much I grew up in a Reformed and um, Calvinist background. And that's much been a 
lot of time in the last um, year or so, like after summer project, the big question in my mind was um, about perseverance and um, if, you know, if you are a Christian, is there you know, a way that you can, you can know? So I, I remember looking at um, like the, the first John 2, I very much do not want to like campaign try to just read the back. I'm very sincerely curious, like um, I remember looking at that verse for a while and being very stumped and like I didn't know what it means. and eventually after finding some people and stuff they came to the conclusion that um, John was writing to the Jewish audience and so he was saying, you know, Christ is the propitiation for our sins, us Jews, and also for the sins of Gentiles who will eventually believe. Yeah. So, in case what, where you would draw contextual clues to look at that, I can find very many. Okay. Let me, rather than going down the path First John, let me give you one. We're kind of, again, away from James, but I'll give you one. Second Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 1, is actually a much more difficult passage for the doctrine of limited atonement. Okay. It says, but false prophets also will arise among the people just as there will be, or also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, believers or non-believers. Well, in James, John, Peter's context here, pretty clearly not believers, right? And then he, he goes on and says about these people, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Could you pick up the phrase? They deny the master who bought them. Uh, that's the term uh, agorazo, from which we get redemption. The other term theologically for limited atonement is particular redemption. He redeemed a particular group of people. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, says that these who end up dis- in destruction, who are not believers, not Christians, deny or reject the master who redeemed them, paid for their sins. Okay, So... Um, you know, First John written to Jews or not to Jews, where I get the contextual clue is from doing a word study on cosmos and what is John's understanding of cosmos. But I think Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, is probably a more challenging verse for that perspective on, on a limited atonement. Tom? I'm also curious about, like, um, Matthew 5, saying, you know, your right hand, your right hand, how stumble and cut it off? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't understand how to so if, you, if your right hand's causing you to stumble and you don't cut it off, you're not going to heaven? No, really. Let me give you a biblical illustration. Uh, is Solomon in heaven? He wrote a few books of the Bible. That's good. Uh, what do you know about Solomon's life? Well, yeah, a lot of wives, a lot of concubines, um, a lot of drinking. So he's drinking a lot. He's womanizing a lot. Probably the worst part of it, though, is that he was an idolater. Okay? And so he brings idols into the very temple of the Lord. And, you know, the argument is, well, he wrote Ecclesiastes after that, and he figured all that out. But the historical record, it looks like he ended his life uh, as a hellion. I mean, he did not end well. Is he saved or is he not saved? Well, if you, if you, if you say you must endure in a life of holiness to the end, then one of the authors of three books of the Bible is not in heaven. I think that your theology is forcing you down a path. 
Genuine believers can resist the will of God. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. They've got the spirit. They're under conviction. And yet they choose to resist and they resist. And what happens? Well, this is what all the warning passages are about. You're going to experience discipline in this life. That's Hebrews chapter 12. And if you persist in that rebellion, God might even take your life. Hebrews chapter 10. And your life will end of no value to other believers. And God's not going to say, great job. You lived well. Because... As creatures made in his image, regenerated with the spirit, we might say, no, God. I say, no, we might resist. So Paul says, I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I preach to others, I myself would be disqualified. Is he saying, I might not obey all the things I'm preaching and end up in hell? No, he's saying, I might stand before Jesus Christ on the day of evaluation. He would say, you don't win the prize. Okay, there is no reward for you. One of the other reasons why where, where Piper diverges is he doesn't see two judgments and he adamantly denies the concept that believers will be rewarded for faithfulness. Okay, he didn't like that. He didn't go there. Okay. Let me. How does this fit with like John 15 where it talks about like Jesus being the true vine and being the gardener and pretty uh, I think it's again the, the key word in the passage is meno. Abide, remain in intimate fellowship. So if a branch is on the ground, uh, most translations say uh, he cuts it off. The better translation of the word in context is he lifts it up. If you want to go out to Messina Hoff, you can get a John 15 tour of the vineyard out here. It's fascinating. It'll really help John 15 come alive for you. If a vine grower sees a potentially healthy vine that could really bear fruit laying on the ground, what's he going to do? cut it off? No. He does is he lifts it off the ground because if it starts bearing fruit and then the fruit's laying on the ground, the fruit rots. So he lifts it up and he ties it off. Okay. He disciplines that. Fine. So it will be fruitful because his goal is that it be fruitful and that the fruit remain or continue. And if it's not, there's discipline. He cuts them off. You know, we see fire and we go, hell, fire, hell, hell, fire. Okay. Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. I mean, 1 Corinthians 3 is a great illustration. Judgment seat of Christ. And what do you have there? You got fire. Fire is testing the quality of each man's work. If any man's work remains, he will receive reward. If any man's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, yet he himself will be saved, but so as through fire. Does that say, like, I could it doesn't say, like, I will not remain in you? Does that mean, like, I don't Well, it, I mean, if you take uh, abide as um, salvation, then yeah, you gotta you gotta stay close to God or you're not saved. I think it's fellowship. So, if you are your father's son, can you ever stop being your father's son? Could you could change your name? Does it change you from being your father's son? It doesn't. You're always your father's son. Okay. I think that's the same thing. You may you may. Uh, dislike your father, sin against your father, you've got broken fellowship from your father, but you still belong to him. Okay, there's a connection there that's irrevocable, so to speak. And I think that, that that is the basic grid through which the New Testament writers are thinking. You, you are born again, you're regenerated, you're put into the family of God. And once that happens, you will always be a child of God. Now, abide in fellowship with the Father and with the Son in order to enjoy the richness of that fellowship and relationship.
And I think that's what he's getting after in John 15. So, anyway, let's call it back. Andrew, you have one. Oh, yeah, well, I, just briefly, I, just, I think Sermon on the Mount is Christ's exposition of the heart or the essence of the law. I think it's very, I think that's the way, in a sense, we should teach and preach the law as applicable to us today, you know. Um, God's real design through the law was to demonstrate his character, his nature, his values, and these should be lived out. And so you notice he doesn't talk about a sacrificial system. It's just, you know, it, it has much more to do with moral qualities and that kind of thing. So, yeah. Well, I, I want to say I, I really appreciate you going into this because I, I, I believe it really matters. So. It's fun, and I hope you don't feel, you, you don't have to walk out of here and agree with me. But, but, I, but I hope that you're, you're, it's stirring you to, think and process you know that's what i'm after what would you say in uh, hebrews 3 13 and 14 but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by deceitfulness of sin for we share in christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end and would you say that the sharing in christ is once again just living in a i guess better manner than yeah, let's, let's, read the, let's read the rest of the passage because it's um, Hebrews, again, probably written to Jewish believers. There's, uh, there's an Old Testament story or narrative that's behind every one of his illustrations or warning passages. So he says, um, I think you read through 14, right? 15, while it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. When did they provoke him? Well, uh, for who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all of those who came out of Egypt led by Moses, didn't all of them. So two million, okay. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? So all two million Jews that were redeemed out of Egypt are now in hell. Is that what he's trying to drive at? Because he's using them as an analogy that we should persevere. He says, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. All, all of them died, except for two, <laughs> uh, Joshua and Caleb. So Moses didn't get to go in. Aaron didn't get to go in. Miriam didn't get to go in. The elders, none of the elders went in. The point of entry into the promised land is the reward of obedience. It's a partaker. It's, and that's, that's a key word in Hebrews is partaker. You enjoy the reward of obedience if you persevere in a life of holiness. And if you don't, you're not going to enter promised land. Promised land is not an analogy for getting saved. So I think that's the background. If you hold that assurance firm until the end, you are going to enjoy the benefits and blessings uh, of obedience to God, in particular in the book of Hebrews, that what they're at risk of, I think, is um, Jewish believers being tempted to avoid persecution by going back into Judaism so that they can hide under the cover of Judaism, which is still an accepted religion by the Roman government. So they stop getting, facing any persecution from government and their family accepts them back in. And he's, he's saying, you know, if you're not willing to publicly stand up for Jesus Christ, you're not going to enjoy that reward of obedience. In fact, Romans 6, 10, 12, you're going to experience the discipline of the Lord, which could even result in death. So... Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think what he's talking about in Galatians 5 will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think he's talking about 
the issue of inheritance, not salvation. I think he's talking about reward. I think. Yeah, he, Paul does talks about inheritance several times. So I think, that, I think that's what he's talking about. Brian, related to that, I'd like to ask you a question from the prodigal son story, where the prodigal son goes away, he returns. So he's obviously repented, but he's passed away, thrown away, wasted the inheritance now that he had been given to use. And then we have the, let's call him the faithful son, but not near relationally. And he comes to the father and he's, you know, complaining, can't believe you're, you're doing this for this son of yours. And, and the father has a phrase in there where, this is what I'm wanting to get your thoughts on. He says, you've always been with me. This brother of yours has returned from the dead. But in between there, he says, you've always been with me. All that I have is yours. And I have taken from that the interpretation that though the son has returned, the prodigal has returned, they're rejoicing, they're celebrating, but the father's not going to try to slice off another chunk of inheritance to give him. He's actually passing everything on to the one who's stayed near and remained faithful. Am I reading too much into that one phrase? Uh, Doug, Doug's question is about prodigal son, where... Um with the elder son, he says, son, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. So the prodigal lost all inheritance and the, the other son keeps it. My opinion, I think you're reading too much into it. I, I think the point of the parable, you know, it's a series of parables and it's about things that are lost. And his point is when he starts, he says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners, that is lawbreakers, right? They're Jewish lawbreakers and they're tax collectors, so they're traitors. They're taking money from their own people and they're giving it to the Roman authorities. So they're really lowlifes. And they're all coming near to Jesus and wanting to be near him and listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes begin to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he tells three, let's see, one, two, three, three parables about how God loves lost things. So I think the emphasis of the parable is on God's attitude toward the lost. He loves the tax collectors and he loves the sinners. And I think that's the main idea in the parable. And then he's, he's getting the, the Pharisees and the self-righteous to relate to the older brother, saying your attitude toward the lost is completely contrary to God's attitude toward the lost. You know, you, you, everything I have is yours. Well, that meaning they, they, they've got all this theological truth, I think, and they've got all these... I think that's more his point. You know, as if, I mean, God's resources in that sense aren't limited. He can, he doesn't have to slice off another piece of the pie. He just make the pie bigger, <laughs> right? So I don't, I don't think that's his point. Because then he goes on and, you know, talks about their stewardship. You know, they have a stewardship with this truth of God that they know. And what are they doing with it? Well, they're, you know, they're greedy and they're not holding it, out, giving it out to others and they're self-righteous and so forth. And so I think that's more, I think that's more what he's getting after. But parables are tricky. <laughs> okay, yeah. It's kind of off point. Is regeneration seen as like an instantaneous thing, or is it, a, is it like taking place over a time period? Uh, I think it's seen as, as instantaneous. I think it actually came up in this passage that uh, one of our elders read earlier. Yeah, uh, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the word. I think being born again, regenerated, is 
instantaneous. Okay. But does it necessarily mean like you're mature? No. Nope. It does not mean that you're mature. Hebrews 5.14, solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Maturity is a process. So in my understanding of sanctification, it's not that you are instantaneously mature and then that mature person just kind of needs to find his way out, so to speak. (laughs) Okay, that's a pretty common current sanctification. You'll read that in uh, John Eldridge, Larry Crabb, uh, a lot lot of them, that's their concept of sanctification. So you'll, you'll see them use the phrase frequently, the real you. So the real you really wants to do righteousness all the time because that's that's in you and that's who you really are. And you're like, well, I'm, man, the real me kind of wants to go over there and sin <laughs> and really kind of wants to live righteously. I'm really feeling very conflicted. I'm in the middle of Romans 7. You know, I mean, that's the real you. And so what happens is progressively as you respond to the voice of the Spirit, your character is transformed and you are strengthened. So sin becomes less attractive and righteousness becomes more appealing. And you are changed. Your personality is changed through the power of Christ working in you. You can't change your character, but God can, and that's what he's about. So I don't think it's this instantaneous embedded maturity that just has to find its way out. So I think regeneration is instantaneous. Maturity is progressive to the degree that we cooperate with the Spirit. Earlier when you were talking about Abraham, how he was righteous, but then still stumbled whenever he took the stare into Egypt. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, but you're asking me something I don't know. I mean, I, I don't. What's the basis of how he's going to evaluate? You know, I think he he evaluates a child becomes a Christian. I think he evaluates based upon the level of understanding, the light that's been received. Um, his judgment will always be just, and he longs to be gracious and merciful. And so I think at the end of the day, we say we trust him. His standard will be right, according to each person. So I can't, I can't, I don't know. <laughs> okay, let's take one. Okay, we'll take two more, and then we'll wrap it. I, uh, so I, I realize that we'll, we'll over here in the corner, we're not going to agree with you. Maybe not. Maybe you'll leave here and we're all in agreement. We're all in agreement. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree with you on a lot of things. I agree with you on regeneration. But uh, in light of James, just, uh, do you think uh, that sin is a nature or sin is an action? Yep. <laughs> yes. His question, his question was, is sin a nature or sin an action? The answer is yes. It's absolutely. It's both. I do actions of sin because of my nature of sin. I, uh, you know, Ephesians chapter 2, I was born dead in my transgressions and sins. That's the nature of sin because I am in Adam. And then I act out. I confirm my nature through my actions. So it's both. Matt? I guess I don't understand all the work stuff. I mean, either it's Christ and nothing else. If we can somehow work our way to heaven... Look, I know a perfect, blameless, sinless Lamb of God who came down here to stand as my sacrifice, but that really wasn't good enough. Let me, this fallible human, help you out in getting me to heaven. I mean, if that's even possible for us to do that, then he died needlessly, right? I think that I think that's 
I think that's uh, part of part of Paul's point. The gift of the cross, which is something we can never repay and we can never earn, and kind of throwing it in his face to say that wasn't quite good enough. In fact, I would venture to say that you're pretending to the throne of Christ to think that you can somehow do this job that only he could do. Okay, but let me speak on behalf of my Reformed brothers. What they would say is, no, it's God producing those works through you because he's sovereign and he has given you a faith that will produce good works. And so in that sense, the works are not adding merit to the work of Christ, but the inevitable result of the faith that he's given you. So, and they would view faith as exclusively, maybe not all, maybe I'm overcharacterizing, but most would view faith exclusively as the gift of God rather than as, in a sense, the responsibility of man. But faith is a gift. And the kind of faith that God gives as a gift is the faith that will produce good works. And if it doesn't, you've just proven that you didn't have real faith. It was spurious faith, as William Perkins used to talk about. Temporary faith or spurious faith. So you could even, they, they would argue, Perkins uh, would argue, you know, you'd have people who had uh, temporarily showed some, some fruit and good works, but um, they weren't genuine believers because it wasn't real faith. They strongly say it's not necessary to secure salvation, but it's absolutely necessary to prove it. Yes. Yeah, a really interesting book, uh, you know, for, for you guys who are reformed, if you want to dive into it, is um, R.T. Kendall, Calvin and English Calvinism to 1647. So R.T. Kendall, Calvin and English Calvinism. is a very interesting read. He, he uh, takes a different slant on where Calvin was coming from as opposed to later English reformers who were laying the foundation for the Westminster Confession. That's a good book. All right, I'm going to wrap this because I'm tired. But that was really fun. Thanks for, thanks for coming and talking and being gracious even if you don't agree with everything. I appreciate that. Father, thanks for uh, revealing your truth to us. And again, we, we acknowledge our own fallibility, but um, you are not fallible and you always speak truth. And I pray that you would guide us into truth. And I do pray again, Father, that uh, we would not just believe in grace, but that we would live grace and we'd be gracious to one another and we'd be gracious to those around us who don't know your son, Jesus. I pray, Father, you give us a, a deep, deep uh, ache and passion for those don't, who don't know your son, Jesus Christ. And we'd have the courage to speak the truth to them. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.